Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Exploring not just what's going on, but why. I just want to press you on one further point. Getting perspective on this region from this region. Places that many of us know, but few of us get to see. Observing countries on the move, still rooted in tradition. It all starts here, and that's why we're here, bringing you the world from our Middle Eastern hub. Connect the world with Becky Anderson, today on CNN. This is CNN. More people get their news from CNN than any other news source. A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as always. And just ahead on today's show, two world leaders, two starkly different versions of the war in Ukraine and the way forward for superpower and indeed global relations. Russian President Vladimir Putin escalating his rhetoric against the West as the first anniversary of the Ukraine conflict approaches. In a speech billed as a state of the nation address, Putin deflecting blame for starting the war, suggesting Russia has done all it can to promote peace while accusing the West of trying to, quote, destroy Russia. He also announced Russia will suspend participation in the New START nuclear control treaty. A study in contrast, though, of course, not billed as such. U.S. President Joe Biden will also mark the anniversary of Russia's invasion with a speech in Poland later today. Biden meeting with the Polish president in Warsaw as I speak and following his surprise historic visit to Kiev, of course, too, on Monday. The U.S. president pledging $500 million in fresh support to Ukraine's defense. New Western sanctions against Russia expected to be announced soon, too. A complete team coverage of today's events just ahead, as well as a closer look at the war's deep and transformative impact on Ukraine's economy one year on. We'll hear from the Deputy General of Wheat and Grain Factory Firm Argo Yug Service, a company that continues to provide food to its citizens against all odds and is even shipping grain to earthquake-struck Turkey too. He sees President Biden's trip to Ukraine as a crucial show of support and a sign that victory for his nation is in sight. But first, to the talks between US President Biden and his Polish counterpart, currently underway. And as those discussions began, President Biden spoke about the close security ties between the two nations. The truth of the matter is, the United States needs Poland and NATO as much as NATO needs the United States. Because there is no way in which, for our ability to operate anywhere else in the world, and our responsibilities extend beyond Europe, we have to have a security in Europe. It's that basic, that simple, that consequential. Those talks, of course, coming ahead of President Biden's pivotal speech later from Warsaw's Royal Castle. And I'm pleased to say CNN Chief International Anchor Christian Amanpour is in Warsaw for us and joins us now. Christian, great to have you on the show. Those talks, let's start there. They began with heartfelt thanks from both leaders, I think, to, to President Duda for his leadership and support for Ukraine. And, of course, towards President Biden simply for being there, I think, at this pivotal moment. 
Absolutely, Julia. I mean, I was actually struck by the extensive praise of President uh, Duda here to President Biden for going to Ukraine, not even for coming to Poland, but first for going to Ukraine and for showing not just a physically and personally and morally courageous step forward, but symbolically and actually saying that the leader of the free world, the most powerful country in the world, is still in it for the long haul to support Ukraine's uh, independence, its democracy, its sovereignty, its territorial integrity. That was an incredibly important moment, uh, very important historically, and President Duda also put President Biden's actions right now in the context of all those decades ago. He talked about Ronald Reagan aligned with two great Polish heroes, Pope John Paul II and Lech Wałęsa, who created the anti-communist movement that, end, that eventually ended uh, the Soviet Union, brought down the Berlin Wall, all the way to now where the United States, headed by Joe Biden, is fighting for global democracy versus autocracy. Yes, those ties throughout history. And it all is a prelude to the speech that we're expected to hear Joe Biden make later on today. It will draw contrast, even as the White House has said, look, this is not about a compare and contrast or a head to head with President Putin. But we did hear from him earlier today, too. What are you expecting from this speech? Well, it's interesting that from President Putin, we didn't really hear what maybe perhaps a lot of people were expecting, i.e. a war plan for going ahead. He didn't really do much of that other than saying, we've got this and we're going to, you know, we're going to win step by step. He really just talked about the four areas that they have illegally occupied, talked about, you know, doubling down on reconstructing and building those up. But as you say, put everything in the context of blaming Ukraine and the West, saying that it was their fault this war had started and we were forced to intervene to stop them. So having said that, President Biden will set his narrative out about how it was actually an illegal invasion, uh, breaking the international laws and norms of respecting international borders, and that it was just a continuation of what President Putin had started by invading parts of Ukraine back in 2014, including the annexation of Crimea. Now, the key point, though, behind all these conversations is what will it take for Ukraine to actually win, which is what NATO keeps saying. They say Putin must not win this one. Ukraine must. What is the definition of winning? We still don't know. They're being deliberately vague. But what we know for sure is that Ukraine needs a lot of massively important right now ammunition to go with all the high quality and high tech weapon systems the United States and other NATO parents, sorry, NATO partners have sent to Ukraine. Yeah, and that was fundamentally echoed by the Lithuanian president who we spoke to yesterday was saying exactly what you're saying now. Actually tied to this and, and Christian, I'd love to get your take on this with surprising comments that, that I picked up on from President Putin talking about the the sort of inadequacy of his own military, the need, I think you mentioned five years. I mean, never mind five years, they could do with it now, but the, the modernization that's required in their military, it's a sort of stark contrast to what we've seen from the, the weaponry that has been provided by NATO partners and perhaps an acknowledgement from President Putin that they lack. 
Well, look, I think you're absolutely right. But Putin, in a way, had to say something like that, because although most of the people they say in Russia supports the war, uh, many, many, particularly the military bloggers who are following the Russian forces um, in Ukraine, have been scathing about the Russian Ministry of Defense and the actual prosecution of this war. And as we know, according to uh, U.S. and NATO statistics, they believe some two hundred thousand Russians have been killed. Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded in this past 12 months. That is at least double the estimates that they have for Ukraine. We don't know the full figures, but that is what the West is saying. So it is not going well for Putin, who began almost a year ago by thinking you could take Kiev, thinking you could take all these other places uh, within several days. And certainly the West thought that as well. And so this last year has been a tale of epic resistance and a thousand percent of punching above world expectations by the Ukrainians supported by the West and NATO. But I agree with you. Putin did acknowledge that there needs to be a much more serious um, fix-up, if you like, of the Russian military. Uh, he also complained about essentially corruption about many of Russian oligarchs and others, maybe even some in the military who he talked about, you know, scampering or scarpering with their yachts and, and leaving, leaving the country. So I think there was that. And he also then had to pay tribute to the families. He had to acknowledge that there were deaths, that, that many deaths, uh, because obviously the families know this, right? So he had to pay tribute to the families of what he called the heroes. Of course, nowhere in that was any acknowledgement of the war crimes and crimes against humanity that the U.S. and others accuse Russian forces of. We saw it in Bucha. We're hearing it all over the place, including in eastern Ukraine. And, you know, we know that a, a very strong part of, of Russia's attack force is a group of criminals who belong to the Wagner group, who do not fight according to the laws and norms of war as we know it. So, you know, it's a sticky situation for all. Mm. To your point and to your earlier point, um, the hopes for peace, the ongoing talks for peace and how ultimately this is resolved. Christiana, I have to let you go. Fantastic, yeah. as always, to have your context. Thank you. And let's continue that discussion. A day after U.S. President Joe Biden said Vladimir Putin's war of conquest is failing, the Russian leader providing a starkly different perspective on the war. In his State of the Nation speech, President Putin claimed Russia's, quote, special military operation, he's still calling it that, was necessary to defend Russia and its identity while blaming the West for the conflict. The elite of the West uh, does not conceal their ambitions, which is to strategically defeat Russia. What does that mean? It means to finish us off once and for all and to make local. They do that by making local uh, conflicts into much wider and bigger ones. And Claire Sebastian joins us now on this. Claire, I know you were listening to, to the whole speech, which went on for a seriously long time, so there's much to unpack. I think one of the pieces that we haven't yet drawn out from that speech was the decision to suspend their participation in uh, the nuclear control agreement with the United States and beyond. 
Yeah, Julia, this came in the final few minutes, really, of this mm. very long speech, almost a record in terms of the length uh, that he's given these sort of State of the Nation speeches. The, the point is that he's uh, suspending Russia's participation in this New START treaty, not, he said, very clearly withdrawing for it, so leaving his options open uh, to come back in the future. But this doesn't really change the current status quo because the U.S. had already deemed Russia in technical non-compliance with this treaty. Russia had not allowed inspectors to come and, uh, and inspect its nuclear sites, its nuclear arsenal uh, since COVID. Obviously, the, the inspections were suspended uh, under COVID, so that had led the U.S. Uh, to call them in non-compliance. President Putin, though, in keeping with the general theme of this speech, blaming the U.S. for this situation, saying that requests uh, for Russia to, to allow these inspections was, quote, theatre of the absurd and that they were never going to do this because they believe that NATO is complicit uh, in strikes on its air bases. Is that a reference clearly to two separate drone strikes on the Russian Engels Air Base in southwestern Russia? That is where we believe some nuclear and nuclear capable weapons are stored. Those drone attacks believed to be coming uh, from Ukraine. He says NATO is complicit, though, because of the provision of, of weapons. And because of that, he doesn't really feel that Russia should be allowing these inspections. Uh, so that is, is a piece of news. The U.S. side, though, says it's going to wait to see the practical impact of this. And State Department spokesperson Ned Price on our air just now uh, saying that they still have channels of communication open with Russia despite all of this, Julia. Claire mm. Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Now, all this coming as China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, has arrived in Moscow now for talks with Russia's foreign minister. It comes amid concerns that Beijing might support the Russian war effort in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Chinese foreign minister says he worries the situation could spiral out of control. Mark Stewart joins us now. Mark, this trip, I think, underscoring the geopolitical fault lines between the world's superpowers. What stood out to me and continues to be, I think, noticeable is China's continuing to call it the Ukraine issue or the Ukraine crisis, rather than even calling it a war. Julia, this issue of terminology is a very important one. As you mentioned, China will not refer to this conflict as a war, but instead a special military operation. And it's interesting, there are so many parallels in the messages that we are hearing from Moscow as well as Beijing. For example, uh, China is putting the blame on NATO. It's also putting the blame on the U.S. for what has escalated. Take a listen to some remarks that we heard uh, earlier today from uh, Qing Gong, who is the Chinese foreign minister. We urge certain countries to immediately stop fueling the fire, stop shifting blame to China, and stop hyping up Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow. Interesting that he brought up Taiwan. So we have a political discussion that's taking place. We have military action that's taking place. But Julia, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the economic relationship between China and Russia. China has depended on Russia for, for a trade as a, as a significant trade partner. And then as we have seen most recently, China purchases a lot of energy from Russia as well. So that's a relationship in addition to this political discussion that we are having that, quite frankly, cannot be ignored. No, and will not be. Mark Stewart, thank you so much for joining us on that. 
Okay, to Turkey now, and at least six people have died and hundreds more are injured after a series of powerful aftershocks struck Turkey on Monday. Nada Bashir joins us now with the latest. Nada, I can only imagine how terrified people were as this latest aftershock took place, and there must be a palpable fear of, of being inside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a region which has already been through absolutely the worst. That earthquake two weeks ago has completely devastated parts of the southeast of this country. And this aftershock has been a cause for a huge amount of fear, concern and distress to have to relive that trauma. Now, we're in Adana, which is about 70 miles away from the reported epicenter in Daphne, which is in Hatay province, which was among the worst hit of the 11 provinces impacted by that earthquake two weeks ago. And we're already here seeing uh, that tension, that sense of fear and, of course, apprehension. We felt the tremor in Adana. We saw people in our hotel moving all their things to the lobby of the hotel so that they could be closer to the exit for fear of another aftershock. And just to give our viewers a sense, I mean, these aftershocks have been happening uh, quite frequently uh, for the last two weeks. But this was the most powerful of those aftershocks and really struck fear into a lot of people. At this stage, authorities have already identified at least 294 people who have been injured as a result of this aftershock, 18 of them in a serious condition. Of course, there is a new death toll, at least six people killed as a direct result of this aftershock. But this is a region which has already seen a significant death toll as a result of the earthquake two weeks ago, topping 41,000 in Turkey. And we are talking about thousands and thousands of people who have been left, ho left homeless, have lost loved ones, who have lost absolutely everything. So you can imagine that this latest aftershock has been a huge moment of concern and fear for people here. The Turkish government, for its part, is still working on the ground when it comes to the humanitarian response effort. We saw rescue teams on the ground in the worst affected areas last night, trying uh, to provide support to anybody trapped beneath the rubble. We've also seen those aid groups still operating on the ground. Field hospitals are still working around the clock and there is a real focus now on providing that housing and accommodation for those most in need and the Turkish government for its part says it is committed to rebuilding those affected areas within a year but to just look at the destruction the scale of the devastation it is almost unimaginable to think that that could be rebuilt in a year and I have to say here in Turkey there is a growing sense of frustration and anger particularly after this latest aftershock questions as to why uh, the Turkish government perhaps isn't as prepared for such a disaster, why some people are still waiting in hotels, unsure of what's going to happen to them, where they go next. We've seen people here in Adana almost stranded, essentially, in these hotels. They have no idea what the next steps are for them, for their families, for their children, uh, when they might be able to return to school, where they will be housed over the coming weeks in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. And there has been a huge outpouring of support. We've seen the international community stepping up, supporting the search and rescue effort, now supporting the humanitarian response effort. Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, visiting those worst affected areas over the weekend and committing further support in the form of 100 million US dollars 
in funding to that relief effort over the weekend. And he acknowledged this in his address to some of those U.S. rescue teams working on the ground, saying that the U.S. would have to stand behind Turkey not only through the search and rescue operation, not only through the humanitarian response effort, but also through the rebuilding effort. And that is something that is going to take months, if not years. There is a long road ahead for Turkey. And this latest aftershock has really only underscored the fear, the apprehension and the uncertainty that people here in southeast Turkey are currently living through. Yeah, as you say, a long road ahead and our thoughts and prayers with all those involved. Nada Bashir, thank you for that report. Okay, straight ahead here on First Move. Resilience against all odds. We're live at a family-run Ukrainian flour mill reliant on international help. Plus, Putin's plan. What does his latest tirade against the West mean for the future of the war in Ukraine? That's all coming up. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. On the day when the ideological chasm between Russia and the United States is laid bare, one of the few diplomatic successes brought about by the international cooperation is the agreement to supply Ukrainian grain to the rest of the world. According to figures released this week by the World Food Programme, nearly 20 million tonnes of grain and other foodstuffs has been exported in 694 shipments. The deal is a critical to the survival of both grain producers, but also those that are receiving that food. In southern Ukraine, Agroyug Service offers one of the largest grain mills in the region. It also makes products like pasta and cookies. Production is still going despite a depleted workforce, intermittent electricity supplies and, of course, the challenge of volatile prices. By working directly with the World Food Programme, it's able to maintain production and they've still managed to donate grain to earthquake-affected regions of both Turkey and Syria. Shamil Malachiev is the co-owner and deputy general director of AgroYug Service. Shamil, great to have you on the show. I think it's almost been a year since you and I spoke, since the, the war began in Ukraine. I know much has changed and we'll talk through it, but I did want to start by asking you what it means to you and to your workers and to your family to have President Biden visiting Kyiv this week. How meaningful was it? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me, Julia. And, um, you know, having President Biden uh, making a surprise visit to Ukraine was a bright uh, beam of light, of hope uh, for all of Ukrainians. It really did a great job of uplifting our spirits, giving us that extra hope. And, uh, you know, in such a historical uh, gesture, uh, showing this much support and this level of uh, support towards all of us. I, I think all of the Ukraine is uplifted and ready to fight and has a lot of hope to, you know, emerge victorious from this war in, in the nearing months. You mean hope that the, the end of the war is in sight? Exactly. Mm. Exactly. With, with this level of support, I think it will be. In the meantime, I know you're doing your best to manage providing foodstuffs essential, not just for Ukraine, of course, but, but elsewhere in the world, but also managing your employees. And, and regulations are set to change, I believe, which will mean you can only reserve 50 yeah. percent of your workforce. I believe you've also lost one of your workers who was actually fighting yeah. on the front lines. Just talk to me about managing your workforce and also... I know the, the person that you've lost. Well, it's um, at the moment it's really hard to making sure that we can, 
uh, you know, the factory can keep operational with, uh, you know, having employees leave the factory and, you know, being in danger of uh, dying at a battlefront because the battles uh, are getting really fierce, especially over the last months with a huge level of mobilization from Russia. And uh, we've had six men leave for battlefront, one of which one of them has died so far, which has been a tremendous loss to uh, to our factory. And uh, the newest regulations only allow us, as you said, to reserve only 50% of all of our men for the period of six months. And after that, we'll only be allowed to reserve 50% of those 50%. Obviously, that excludes uh, people with uh, the experience that is uh, in dire need on the battlefront with the military experience. Can I just ask Shamir about the, the worker that you lost now that you mentioned it? Have you, have you managed to do anything for his his family? Was of he course. married? Did he of have course. children? Um, of course, uh, uh, all of our employees, we, we've been doing everything we can to make sure that we can support them, to make sure that we can um, do like everything we can to help them live through uh, this war. Uh, we've uh, we've helped uh, his wife and kids, making sure that you know they have funds to sustain themselves for at least a year. And this was literally the least that we could do. Also, all of the other employees at the factory, they've uh, did a little fundraiser as well to help the family. Thank you for that. Um, just important to ask. There are many families out there that are suffering. I know. Um, Talk to me about just the challenges of of day-to-day running of the factory, because we know in many cases and in certain parts of the country, infrastructure is being targeted, and that's created problems in terms of water supply and electricity supply. And you're managing with intermittent electricity, which I think for any business, and particularly a factory, is is tough to handle. What are conditions like currently? Uh, well, currently, for the last three days, we didn't have any uh, electricity shutdowns, which is magical, I would say. Uh, having to live for the last seven months without any water supply and with, uh, you know, electricity works around 40% of the time, you know, with two and a half hours, three and a half hours uh, shifts. And um, m- making sure that, you know, the factory stays operational and running every day is is a tough challenge. We were lucky that well, one of our friends, uh, it was a, a different uh, factory that closed down. They had a generator which they could lend us. And this allowed us to power the factory with the diesel fuel during the times where the electricity has been shut down, which in turns, uh, which in turn uh, uplifts our prime costs quite a bit with electricity being uh, around three times more expensive this way. But at least it helps us to make sure that we can uh, continue producing because we have humanitarian aid that we're giving out. We also have the contract that we've managed to make with the World Food Program uh, back in November, on which we're working pretty much at a a full capacity at the moment. And uh, yeah, the situation is relatively tough, but you know, last few days it's been getting better and we really hope that the energy infrastructure is fixed for good in Ukraine at the moment. Fingers crossed that can be sustained. I think a lot of people watching this will be wondering, 
how you're managing to finance all of this. As you said, working with the World Food Programme has been pivotal, I'm sure, for ensuring demand and and knowing what at least the near future looks like in terms of, of what's required. But how else are you financing this? Because I know you also provided, I believe, 21 tonnes of, of wheat flour directly yeah. to Turkey to help with the crisis going on there. And I know you've also been providing free foodstuffs, bread in certain parts of the country too. So how are you, how are you managing financially? Well, it was hard for us after losing the warehouse back in right. July, I think. And um, yeah. Yeah. And since then we've we've taken out a, another like line of credit from the banks under 0% interest rate, which is the government initiative to help companies sustain themselves. And having a contract with the World Food Program actually allows us to uh, you know, it's a reasonable like amount of safety for us to uh, launch other initiatives like helping the Turkey, for example, because we really know what it's like to have the city shattered to pieces with people's lives destroyed. And, uh, you know, with uh, all the support that Turkey uh, has been given Ukraine as well with us and helping with the grain deal, we felt obliged to also, you know, share a helping hand in the tough times uh, when we can. Speaking of uh, helping hand in tough times, we're actually showing video of um, you and your company providing bread, free bread to, to people yeah. in, in Hassan. And you can see people smiling and, and looking into the camera and, and pointing out that I think how grateful they are to, to have your support. Um, Shamil, do you ever get disheartened? Because this is incredibly tough what, what you and your nation are going through. You've talked about the loss, the suffering. You also talked about the hope at the beginning of, of yeah. this conversation. But do you get disheartened? I think what I think what helps us push through is the level of unity. We we all live as one single organism at the moment, uh, doing our best. You know, with the people you've never met in a different city, you know what they're going through. You know how like what they're suffering, and you almost feel like a family. So you're trying to do everything you can to help as many people as you can. And I think that's part of the spirit of every Ukrainian. And this is why we've been doing so well fighting off uh, Russian forces. And uh, with the humanitarian aid, we're never going to stop. Even, you know, after the war, we're still going to have to continue going for another two or three years, making sure that we rebuild. And receiving so much support from all of our American friends, and I hope some of them are watching us right now, uh, we have a lot of American families donating money, which goes directly to uh, to us providing wheat flour for volunteering organizations, for the bakeries that supply free bread to the uh, places of uh, well, really close to the battlefront. And you know, having all of that support and seeing all of those smiling people with you know with the amount of thanks that they give us and to every worker and employee of the factory. Um, it really fills us, it makes us feel that we're, you know, doing our life's mission and, and it's the righteous one. I think you're um, a good representative of um, both the heart, the care and the spirit of Ukrainians at this moment. <laughs> I, I want to believe so. <laughs> Stay safe, please. <laughs> um, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank, Thank you for your time. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stay with CNN. 
Welcome back to First Move. And ahead of the anniversary of the war in Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin is attempting to reframe the conflict. During his State of the Nation address, the Russian leader claimed the war was necessary to defend Russia's identity while accusing Ukraine of serving the interests of the West. They're responsible for the escalation of the situation in Ukraine, for the huge numbers of casualties. And of course, the Kiev regime is essentially alien to the people of Ukraine. They are not protecting their own interests, but those of their minder countries. President Putin also announced that Russia is suspending its participation in the New START nuclear arms reduction treaty. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called the decision, quote, deeply unfortunate and irresponsible. Joining us now is Ben Judah, director and senior fellow of the Atlantic Council. He's also the author of Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell In and Out of Love with Vladimir Putin. Ben, great to have you on the show. Much of the same rhetoric, I think, in many cases that we've heard from Vladimir Putin before. Many different audiences, I think, for the content here, too. What was the most important audience in your mind? I think it's very important to remember that Vladimir Putin speaking to different groups of people when he does mm. these speeches. The most important for him is that audience that's literally right there in the room. It's the audience of governors and spy chiefs and military chiefs and oligarchs. And his speech today was telling them, I'm sticking with the war. Then the next audience, uh, which really matters to him, is the audience that's watching at home in Russia. It's the Russian people. And he's trying to explain to them why this war has gone so badly and why it's causing such a degradation in the quality of their lives through sanctions. What he's telling them here today is this is not a war against Ukraine, which I told you is a weak country. It's a war against the West. Then there's another audience out there in international politics, which we don't think about enough, which is the global south, which is the countries that are not part of the West and are not Russia or its immediate allies, countries like India, Brazil, countries in Africa, Southeast Asia, where Russian propaganda is succeeding as it fails in the West. And he was speaking to them, framing this as self-defense against an aggressive and hegemonic West. And then lastly, we're the audience. And by that, I mean the media and policy classes of the Western alliance. And he's trying to frighten us by making us think that he's going to kind of turn up the costs for us on this war. And one of the things that he's got to play now is an arms race or the threat of an arms race by pulling out of the START Treaty. Your point about the Global South here is fascinating because I think the um, anti-Western propaganda and the message clearly isn't bought by nations across the West. But to your point, it can be incredibly potent in some of those nations. And we've seen that at the United Nations Security Council and the way that they vote or abstain uh, in particular. Where does this leave Russia one year on from this war? I mean, he acknowledged, and we talked about this earlier on in the show, um, how the military has lacked the, the fact that they need to see dramatic modernization over the next five years. Can Vladimir Putin, whether it's socially, uh, economically, militarily, politically, withstand another year of war in your mind? Well, well this is why the question of how Russia relates to the global south and China is so right. important. The fact that governments in India and Turkey and across Africa, Southeast Asia and South America and in the Gulf have, you know, been open or sympathetic partially to Putin's arguments means that he's been able to do sanction evasion through many of those 
territories. The West is not enforcing secondary sanctions on those territories, not going after, as of yet, kind of Emirati or Saudi or Turkish companies that are doing business with the Russians. So he's kept a door open to Russia's trade with the world through his diplomacy and his successful propaganda in that part of the world. And then there's the question of China. So the Munich security um, gathering, which just took place uh, a few days ago and was largely seen as a sort of festival of celebration for the West, had a big China-shaped shadow over it, which was the warning by Tony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, that China might be willing to start supplying lethal weapons to uh, Russia to keep itself going in the war. Now, if China does do that, that would be an astounding success for Vladimir Putin in his international diplomacy. And that would mean a dramatic change in how China relates to Russia. I think the most significant change in how China relates to Russia since the 1970s. Hold that thought, because I do want to explore that very briefly in, in a moment. I just want to show my uh, my viewers what we're seeing now, which is crowds building at Warsaw Castle ahead of President Biden's speech. There's going to be this compare and contrast naturally, despite the White House saying, look, this is not a head to head with Vladimir Putin, who obviously spoke earlier and we've been discussing. But as you can see, even two hours ahead of that speech, huge crowds building there. Ben, bring it back, because I think this is a vitally important point that you're making. And perhaps if I try and put it into some kind of um, more concise English, if I can, the idea and the fear that perhaps Russia becomes a, a proxy for a broader geopolitical battle between the United States and China. Well, that's one of the things that the countries of the global south are quite concerned about. Like We've been hearing that countries in South America, Africa, you know, South and Southeast Asia are very concerned that in a world where development and climate change and rising interest rates have all been huge problems for them, not to mention a debt crisis, if the Ukraine war turns into what they would call a proxy war between China and the United States, they think that will make solving their problems harder. Yeah, Ben. Great to get your context. Thank you so much. Ben Judah, Director and Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council. All right, coming up now on First Move, is it time up for tech on content moderation at least? The US Supreme Court is about to hear two cases that could truly affect the way that internet search operates in future. A live report from Washington next. Welcome back to First Move. An unspeakable tragedy is triggering an unprecedented debate on the powers of big tech and the current level or lack of controls regarding online content. The U.S. Supreme Court begins hearing the first of two major cases today that could have major implications for what we see on the Internet. The big question, are online content providers legally responsible for certain content on their platforms? Jessica Schneider joins us now and has been looking at this. Jessica, help my audience understand what's at stake. Well, what's at stake could really be a huge change for the internet and the way that social media companies are run. And because of that, Julia, tech companies are really bracing for this showdown at the Supreme Court. Today, it will be a first of its kind case. At 10 o'clock this morning, in just 15 minutes, 
the justices will be deciding if the family of an American student who was killed in the 2015 Paris terror attacks, whether they can sue YouTube's parent company, Google, because of the algorithms that YouTube use that the family says actually promoted terrorist content online. YouTube is saying that those algorithms are all protected broadly by Section 230, which was a law passed by Congress here in the U.S. in 1996. And the big tech companies are warning that if that protection gets chipped away, it could mean monumental changes for the Internet. We continue in this fight because we're seeking justice. The Gonzalez family's long legal fight started when their 23-year-old daughter, Noemi, was killed in Paris in 2015. Noemi Gonzalez was at a bistro when ISIS terrorists unleashed gunfire, part of a coordinated citywide attack of bombings and shootings that killed 129 people. She was the only American. It was a terrible, horrible moment in my life that I cannot describe the pain. The Gonzalez family now wants YouTube and parent company Google to be held liable for Noemi's death. They've lost in the lower courts, but the Supreme Court agreed to hear their appeal. And their lawyers will now try to convince the nine justices that YouTube's algorithms promoted ISIS-affiliated videos to certain viewers. And that is how ISIS recruited and enlisted support. Instead of terminating these videos, instead of eliminating them, instead of deleting them, they promoted them. But Google says they aren't responsible, given the broad protections of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Congress passed the law in 1996 to shield Internet platforms from being sued for harmful content posted by third parties on their sites. Google argues its algorithms recommending content are what make it possible to find the needles in humanity's largest haystack, warning that if Section 230 does not apply to how websites sort content, the Internet would devolve into a disorganized mess and a litigation minefield. There's no evidence the Paris attackers were specifically radicalized on YouTube, but Noemi's parents still allege YouTube aided and abetted ISIS and should not be able to hide behind Section 230. They should stop it. They have the, the power to do it. This will be the first time the Supreme Court has considered the scope of Section 230 and the extent to which it protects social media companies. The push to reform Section 230 is widespread. Last month, President Biden penned an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal calling for modifications. And Republicans have repeatedly blasted big tech for what they call alleged censorship of conservative ideas. The Gonzalez family, though, just wants justice for the death of their daughter at the hands of ISIS-linked terrorists. Nothing is uh, going to give me back my daughter, but at least that is something good is going to be accomplished. And the Gonzalez family will be in the courtroom today for this monumental case. But it isn't the only big case that will go before the Supreme Court. Another challenge will be heard tomorrow. That will determine if social media companies like Twitter and Facebook can be held liable under an anti-terrorism law. It's a case that's separate from the Section 230 challenge. But, Julia, it really does have similarly potentially massive ramifications, since both of these cases could really change the way that Internet and social media companies operate, you know, if they become more compelled to heavily regulate speech, they'll have to regulate all that speech that really runs rampant online. Julia? Yeah. Yeah. And in the case of the Gonzalez family, even if the Supreme Court don't find in their favor and that they say that, look, the laws do protect the tech companies, it argues mm-hmm. that the, the laws are wrong and, and require changing.
Yeah. Jessica and they still might be changed this. by Congress. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yep. Yes. Just we'll see what happens. We shall. Thank you. Great to have Thank you on you. the show. Welcome back to First Move. A state-of-the-art NASA instrument is sending crucial information back to Earth that could help in the fight against global warming. In our new series, Transformers, CNN meteorologist Alison Chinchar meets a scientist working with NASA on the project. In July 2022, this SpaceX rocket launched with a new NASA instrument called EMIT on board. Well, EMIT is going to revolutionize what we can do. So it's just going to provide such amazing new data to help us understand the surface and the atmosphere. Now, over 250 miles above the Earth, attached to the International Space Station, its purpose is to shed light on an important weather phenomenon, dust. Desert dust, or mineral aerosols, is a mineral soil particle that's suspended in the atmosphere. And so these come out mostly from desert regions that are dry and unvegetated with strong winds. For over two decades, climate scientist Natalie Mahowald has been tracking dust across the globe and how it impacts climate change. I love looking at a globe and thinking about how dust is getting from one place to another. She's been working with NASA on this new instrument to find out how different colors of dust in the atmosphere can heat or cool the planet. So different soils actually have really different colors. So the white ones reflect incoming solar radiation and the red ones and the dark ones absorb it. And so one of the problems we have in understanding the impact of desert dust is we don't know the composition very well. Using a device called an imaging spectrometer, EMIT scans the Earth's arid regions to detect different colored soils, creating a mineral map. Already EMIT has taken millions or billions of observations of what's going on in the arid regions in terms of the composition. And then we can use that to put into our models to better understand what actually the impact of the desert dust is. Dust and sandstorms have dramatically increased in recent years due to climate change, land degradation, and drought, according to the UN. These storms are causing respiratory illnesses, damaging livestock, disrupting transport, and even melting Arctic ice. We've also watched <laughs> dust plumes really just travel across oceans and be deposited in Greenland or even in the Alps. EMIT can also detect another factor impacting climate change, methane, a potent greenhouse gas. It's detected 50 super emitters across the world, mostly coming from fossil fuel, landfill, and agricultural facilities. NASA hopes this knowledge can help countries stem the emissions and shine a spotlight on how our planet is changing. So you can uh, think of the EMIT project as uh, really testing the waters and really showing what is possible. 
And finally, on first move, if you think a new iPhone is expensive, you would be right. But bear in mind, one or some of the very early ones could now be worth a whole lot more. A first generation iPhone from back in 2007, just like this one, just sold at auction for more than $63,000. When it was new, the phone's two megapixel camera was seen as cutting edge technology. Apple sold them for around $600 each back then. Just for context, I believe that this one was given as a gift and it was still in the box. So if you've got a lot of those cracked or broken ones like I have, um, hard luck. It's not going to be a great return on investment like that one was. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. I still miss my BlackBerry, I'll be honest. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.